I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. While things are still unsettled in the world, we are going to be turning to some of our favorite episodes from the past four years, which I hope you'll enjoy. Some of our best poets have the greatest range. Think of Shakespeare and all his wild permutations, or Edna St. Vincent Millay boomeranging from heartbreak to revelry. This is the feeling I get when reading T.S. Eliot, who captured our bruised souls in the wasteland, itemized the neuroses of unrequited love in Prufrock, and then turned around and set to verse the antics of cats like Growl Tiger and Rumple Teaser. You could say that the same kind of range exists in the best of actors. Like Jeremy Irons, say, who's played everyone from starry-eyed Charles Ryder, Humbert Humbert himself, and my personal favorite, Scar, from The Lion King. And now, thanks to Jeremy Irons' latest audiobook, you can hear Scar narrate T.S. Eliot's book of cats and die happy. I am so tickled to introduce Jeremy Irons. He joins us to talk about his new audiobook, The Poems of T.S. Eliot, how he prepares for his projects, and why we all need a little more poetry in our lives. Thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. So, first of all, how did you come to read the selected poems of T.S. Eliot? Um, I was one of the readers of, of many evenings um, organized by the, the author, Josephine Hart, who, strange enough, wrote Damage, which was a film that I, I made. Um, and she would do poetry readings about once a month at the British Library. Uh, and she'd use three or four friends, usually actors, to read, and a, a wide selection of poets. But she seemed to get me to read quite a lot of Eliot. And one evening after the performance, I met Valerie, Valerie Eliot, his widow, who'd been in the audience, and I think I'd been reading Prufrock that night. And she said, you know... I think you're today's voice of Eliot. Um, you know, each generation produces a voice who reads him well, and, and you seem to understand him, which surprised me enormously because I'm not intellectual at all. I hadn't studied him. I didn't know very much about him. I, I would just take what was on the page and try to translate it to the audience. And anyway, Valerie said, listen, I, I'd love you to read as much as you can of Eliot. And so shortly after that, we recorded The Wasteland, uh, Eileen Atkins and I, for the BBC. 
and that went out and they were had a good reaction and then I think they asked me to do the four quartets and and then I had to begin studying it a little bit and and, and reading around the poems because they're fairly dense and difficult and and then the BBC came to me and said we'd love to do all of Eliot's poetry all of his great poetry anyway on New Year's Day we'd like to put it out right across the day on Radio 4 and I thought it was a wonderful idea you know people after Christmas after New Year's they're sort of a bit overdosed and the idea of having the time just to sit and relax and listen to poetry is, I think, a fairly nice idea for for January the 1st. That does sound nice. Um, so had you read much of Eliot before this project? No, I hadn't. I hadn't. I had read some. I mean, I think I'd probably read Prufrock and the Wasteland, and I hadn't really spent time getting into it. Eliot's very interesting. I mean, he wrote in a letter... I think he'd been reading some Lawrence or, 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 or some criticism of D.H. Lawrence, and and he said, this speaks to me of that of which I've long aimed in writing poetry, to write poetry which should be essentially poetry with nothing poetic about it, poetry standing naked in its bare bones, or poetry so transparent that we shouldn't see the poetry but that which we are meant to see through the poetry. Poetry so transparent that in reading it, we're intent on what the poem points at and not on the poetry. This seems to me the thing to try for, to get beyond poetry, as Beethoven in his later works got beyond music. We never succeed, but that's what I try to do. Um, That very much spoke to me when I read that. And I often say this to audiences before I read to them. I said, don't don't get worried about the specifics, about the little moments, about the classical um, allegories or analogies or whatever that that he pops in. That meant something to him, but but if it doesn't mean anything to you, it's not important. Just listen, let it wash over you. Don't be too specific or pedantic in the way you listen. And maybe something will be transmitted over and above the poem. People are often quite grateful for that because they say, oh, I see, all right, I can just relax and just listen. And what what works works for me and what doesn't work doesn't work and I just forget about it. I think that's very good advice. I mean, it can be really intimidating just as a reader to go into Eliot or another yeah. writer like Joyce, you know, even just as yeah. a, a person reading a book in solitude, I feel like I have to have the companion book, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's interesting, but it's strange. I mean, I read the commentaries and I read the companion books and I think, yeah, well, okay, but it doesn't get you anywhere as far as what the poem is really about. And I sometimes looked online um, to look at, at lectures, often American, at universities about four quartets, about Eliot, and I thought, yeah, okay, that's interesting, but it doesn't actually help as far as the real thing that is being communicated is concerned. I keep looking for something I might have missed, but they're always talking about details and specifics, and 
I think that's not what it's about. That's poetry is is actually a way. I think a way of writing when prose won't do, and 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 you can't find the truth of it by looking into the details. The details are what make it up. It's like if you're driving a Lamborghini, you know, and if you know exactly how the ratio gears work, uh, that's interesting. But it has not a lot to do with the thrill you get when you put your foot on the pedal and the car roars forward. Do you know what I mean? Well, I haven't driven a Lamborghini, but... <laughs> yes. Well, but uh, take anything, a Chevy, or I don't know, some great American car. Yeah, that makes sense. You don't necessarily have to understand how all the allegories and the metaphors fit together as long as it speaks to you. I think so. I think so. Did you happen to listen to any of Eliot's recordings of his work? Was that any influence at all? It was. It's. It's. Uh, I had to listen. I listened to everyone's recording to see if I they had something that I wasn't catching. He he actually said he said a recording of a poem read by its author is no more definitive an interpretation than a recording of a symphony conducted by the composer. A poem, if it's of any depth and complexity, will have meanings in it concealed from the author and should be capable of being read in many ways and with a variety of emotional emphases. A good poem, indeed, is one which even the most inexpert reading cannot wholly ruin and which even the most accomplished reading cannot exhaust. And he says, another reader reciting the poem needn't feel bound to reproduce these rhythms. If he's studied the author's version, he can assure himself that he's departing from it deliberately and not from ignorance. Mm. And that's really why I listened to him reading, um, which I didn't find very uh, helpful. I didn't much like the way he read. Oh, I'm so um, glad you said that. <laughs> I didn't like it either. No. But I, I think that's often the case with poets. You know, they they have the colours and the movement and the thoughts in their heads already. Having that, they just read the lines, or Eliot, anyway, reads the lines really quite flatly. But what, what I felt I had to do was to try to put those colours and those movements and those feelings into the audience's head by having them in mind, but sort of transmitting them. Therefore, uh, I, I think the reader needs to, without putting himself in the way, which is very important, and I don't believe in, in readers imposing their own personality in the way of the reading. It's got, they've just got to transmit as best they can what they feel from the writing into the audience's heart and soul. And I think a reader of, of poetry should disappear. I think actors in a play should be the same. Now, there are some actors who you go to watch because they're wonderful and gorgeous and you just admire them. And there are some actors, I, I think, who allow what the writer, the, what the playwright was thinking and feeling to get across to the audience without getting in the way by being too colourful in themselves. Does that make any sense? Yeah. It's like you're a vessel for the voice of the poet, in a way. Do you feel like the preparation for reading poetry is 
similar to preparing for a role in a play or a film? Well, I, I, I mean, Eliot wrote all these poems at different times. He was at different places in his life. He was in different moods. The subjects were different. And so, in a way, the, I think the, the Eliot reading, the Eliot writing, rather, and therefore the reader, uh, you know, it's different. It's different when you're reading the cat poems, for instance, to when you're reading um, The Wasteland. And, and that is instinctive. That just you, you read the poem and you sort of feel the person who wrote it, how he was when he wrote it, and you try to give it just a little bit of that. Um, so in a way, you are becoming a character, I think, as you read the poem. Did you do any digging into Eliot's life to get to know the person who wrote these poems a little better? I mean, would that kind of research be helpful? Yeah. Yeah, you've got to know where the man was. What age was he? Where was he living? How? What was his domestic situation? How happy was he? Who were his competitors? Because, of course, poets are very competitive. They, <laughs> they know that, that the other poets are going to be reading their work. Um, so how edgy are, are you about that? How much do you not care? And as you get older, you care less about what other people think. So you know the man changes. I, you know, I'm not an academic. I haven't spent my whole life studying him, so I probably know less. But that's the way it is. Maybe I, maybe being slightly less cluttered with knowledge is helpful. I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. The only person who can really tell is the listener. If they are affected, moved by the poems, uh, if something is transmitted by the poems, then I would say my job had been done successfully. So what's different about preparing for a project like this compared to doing a novel? I mean, this is not your first audiobook, and the other ones that you've done, you know, Brides had revisited Lolita also happened to be films that you've played in. So what was that like? That's right. Well, I've always chosen books that I know, stories that I know, stories that are wrapped around my um, being, my soul, my heart. I did once read uh, Thomas Hardy. Uh, I've forgotten the title, but I remember it was just a, a book which some company suggested I read, and I. I read it quickly once and then recorded it, and I was, it was terrible because I had no investment in it. Uh, and then I decided that I would only read work that I really felt, in some small way, was part of me. So Bride said, French Lieutenant's Woman, uh, John Fowles, um, Lolita, uh, The Alchemist. Perhaps that was slight laziness in that I... I didn't want to have to spend a lot of time preparing because you don't get paid very much for reading these books and you can't put too much time over for it. Mm. But I do little preparation. I mean, I remember with Lolita, which I, I think, I mean, I don't want to bang my own drum because a lot of other people are involved and it's a fantastic book, but I discovered that the company was doing an abridged version and I thought, well, why are we doing an abridged version? And I talked to Nabokov's son, who was also his agent, I think. And I said, listen, I don't think you should allow that to happen. I think you should say, if you want to do my father's book, you have to do it all. 
because that was what he wrote. He didn't write it shorter. He wrote it that length. So let's do it all. So I turned up for the recording and they said, listen, uh, we're going to do it all. I said, great. Um, but they said, you've only got two days. We're going to need three if we do it all. I said, I haven't got three days. I've got to fly off to wherever it was. I don't know now. Um, but I said, I'll read it very quickly. <laughs> and so I sat down and I started. And the way I do it is I, I read. If I make a mistake or do something in a way I don't like, I go back immediately and redo it. And we spent two days and we got through it all. And as a result, the, the recording has a tremendous energy to it. Uh, it's not too studied. It just flows. And, and that's the way I try to do it. I say to the producer, don't interrupt me unless you really have to. I know when I go wrong and I'll go back and, and do it again. Um, but I need to stay in that space, in that little booth with me and the book and the words and the thoughts. And, and they, they seem to let me do that. Yeah. And I think that passion for the words that you're reading, that like real connection with the text comes through a lot. Um, I mean, for me, at least listening to some books helps them come alive more. Um, I listened to all of Jane Austen's novels on audiobook, read by Juliet Stevenson, who... Oh, she's wonderful. Isn't she? Yeah. And I, I feel like I got so much more out of it, especially with the dialogue and the characters really coming alive. I'm no actor, but I do feel like reading is in some way an extension of acting. It, oh, absolutely it is. Absolutely. Much the same. I mean, you're telling a story, which is what actors are. They're storytellers. I mean, since time immemorial, people have sat around and listened to bards reciting stories and legends and poetry. And I think it's no different now. And I think poetry is easier listened to than read. I hope that if a reading works for you, that it brings the poems alive. I think we need more poetry in life, don't you? There's so much chatter about, which really is meaningless. And to find time to listen to poetry and to calm ourselves and to get away from the hustle and the bustle of everyday life must be a good thing. I couldn't agree more. Well, to close out our conversation, could you transport us with some poetry? I realize this might be like choosing a favorite child, but did you have an Eliot poem that you might read for us? Well, yeah, I thought I wouldn't read a long one. I thought I'd read a quite a short one. It's called Aunt Helen. Miss Helen Slingsby was my maiden aunt and lived in a small house near a fashionable square, cared for by servants to the number of four. Now, when she died, there was silence in heaven, and silence at the end of the street. The shutters were drawn, and the undertaker wiped his feet. He was aware that this sort of thing had occurred before. The dogs were handsomely provided for, but shortly afterwards the parrot died too. The Dresden clock continued ticking on the mantelpiece, and the footman sat upon the dining table, holding the second housemaid on his knees, who had always been so careful 
while her mistress lived. <laughs> there you are. That was just a taste of Jeremy Irons' take on T.S. Eliot's poems. For more, check out the audiobook, The Poems of T.S. Eliot, still available incredibly on CD or else at online audiobook retailers everywhere. We'll be back next week with The Plant Messiah. Yes, you heard me. Flower Jesus. And that's all I'll say about it. We'll see you next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.